Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. And our special guest on the show today is Zach Hicks, adjunct lecturer in music and worship at Samford University in Alabama in the States. Previously, he served as the canon for worship and liturgy at Advent Cathedral in Birmingham, Alabama. And he's here with us today along with my co-host, uh, Ian Reid, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. They're both here to talk about Zach's new IVP book about the great 16th century Protestant reformer, Thomas Cranmer, the man responsible for the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer, and a very interesting man living in a very dangerous time, as we'll find out. Uh, Zach's book in the Dynamics of Christian Worship series is called Worship by Faith Alone, Thomas Cranmer, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Reformation Liturgy. Zach argues that Cranmer's reformation of the church's worship and liturgy was shaped primarily by the Protestant principle of justification by faith alone. So let's dig in and find out all about this. Zach, hi, welcome from the States. Hello, good to be with you all. And hi, Rito, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Now, Zach, who was Thomas Cranmer? Thomas Cranmer was a Protestant reformer right around the 16th century of England who had to navigate the murky waters of England's transition between being a Roman Catholic and being a more thoroughly Protestant country engaging in that that worship. And he had to navigate the whims of King Henry VIII and had to figure out what it means for worship life society to receive all uh, the goodness, the good side of all the Reformation had to offer for church in the world. How difficult was Cranmer's political situation during his time as Archbishop of Canterbury? We mentioned Henry, but he also served under, was it Edward VI? And was it Mary as well towards the end? That's indeed right. I mean, it, it got so difficult that as a result of the political situation, he indeed died because under, under Queen Mary, he was martyred along with two others in Oxford. And uh, so, yeah, it, it cost him his life, ultimately, his, his beliefs, his views, his stand for the gospel and those sorts of things so yep it was it was very difficult <laughs> yes and some would argue that queen mary's decision the other two characters were uh ridley and latimer am i right that's correct so yeah. three three bishops of the church of england burnt as heretics at the stake and that was a massive mistake for mary at the time wasn't it yeah i mean ultimately that led to some of those things kind of uh led to her own demise in many ways and uh became uh, a backhanded way once fox began to tell the story of all those martyrs where people really began to side with all the difficulties that the protestants like cranmer and ridley and latimer went through and fox used almost as propaganda to be able to encourage a new generation of christians to side with the protestants what was he like archbishop cranmer as a as a man it's a bit hard to tell sometimes i think it is a lot of people that were around him talked about his notorious poker face evidently somehow he wasn't an expressive person and i mean that probably allowed him to survive in a, a difficult climate where you know, you were subject to the vicissitudes and the whims of of King Henry VIII. Evidently, though, Cranmer also had a reputation. This is one of my favorite things about him. His secretary writes about this. He had a reputation for forgiving his enemies. So evidently, even as he was someone in leadership, someone who operated out of conviction and uh, really stuck to his principles, for people who were against him, he had the reputation of being so lenient 
that uh, some would say of him, hey, if you want to get on Cranmer's good side, do something really nasty to him and you'll find him treating you really favorably as a result. So evidently, what I love about that is it seems that biographically he internalized the gospel that he prized and somehow grace, the grace that meant something to him was uh, borne out in the relationships, especially of those who fought with him. Can you just tell us, before we move on to dealing with the liturgy and the prayer book, which is the focus of the interview, but can you just tell us the story at the end? Because he actually, he was actually, he recanted his Protestant views, didn't he, for a very short That's period right. of time. Tell us about that. It's a, it's a moving story. It is moving. Um, towards the end of his life, he was indeed arrested and, and locked up as a result of things he wrote, particularly on the sacraments. And... Um, the pressure he was under was to recant those views in order for him to uh, in order for him to be okay. And we would probably say that under the psychological pressure and all the pressures at stake and and a bit of the psychological torture he was under because of the three martyrs we mentioned, he was the third. And I remember I was in England not that long ago, a few years ago, and I was in the very place he was jailed. And from the place he was jailed, you can see the area where the other two were burned from the stake. And uh, it is no doubt, especially because for one of them, uh, it was a cold and wet day and trying to light them on fire actually proved difficult. They lit it and it extinguished, they lit it and extinguished. And it was creating a really painful moment uh, for for those for one of those martyrs. And it it would be a surprise to me if Cranmer hadn't heard all that and hadn't kind of witnessed it with his ears. And so in the midst of seeing some of his best friends die and perish and in the midst of uh, just feeling the weight of, I think what his conviction was, he had an interesting take on the divine right of kings. And what that means was he really had a strong view of God's providence as it related to who was in power. Even if the person in power was Mary, someone who was after him, he still in his own heart felt an obligation before God to submit to that ruler. And I think that that whole complex constellation of issues was at play as Cranmer was being pressured to recant his positions. So he did. He wrote a recantation and then he was still going to be sent to, uh, to his death, but it was going to be a nicer death as a result. Um, and he found himself before the people being asked to read his recantation in the church. And Instead of reading his prepared speech, he went off script and began to recant his recantation and ultimately say he didn't mean it and ultimately say uh, that he had to, before the Lord, be honest about his convictions about scripture and about the gospel. For him, the sacramental view that he held was tied to the gospel. So, uh, at least from my perspective, in that moment, he was taking a stand for the gospel. So they they quickly shut him up, drug him out, tied him to the stake. And uh, the legend goes that as he was getting ready to be burned, he actually stuck his hand out into the fire first. So it burnt up first and said, this is the hand that doth offend. In other words, I sign my recantation with this hand, and this is the first hand that should be punished and should be burned. And and then he died that day. An amazing story, an amazing yeah. day. Rito, your take on, on Cranmer, just briefly. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that um, people kind of view the Anglican and Episcopal kind of church with 
some reservation now, uh, but without realising its its roots, you know, kind of in, in people like Crown and Latimer, you know, that it's it's thoroughly reformed, you know, kind of in its in all of its documents in the thirty nine articles. And I think what Cranmer was doing was something that no, no other reformer had to face was it in terms of trying to change a whole nation where the people weren't on board and and the you know the the ruling class weren't really you know Henry VIII a little bit but not not out of conviction um, right yeah, do you yeah. Think that it is interesting and part of the reason that's interesting is uh, the Anglicanism of today would be a bit foreign to Cranmer in the sense of he'd look at it and go what are you doing? This isn't what we were going for in the 16th century. Um, and the reason he'd say that is because, and the reason we'd be confused about that is that since Cranmer's time, there's been a desire amongst Anglicans to rewrite Cranmer in the shape of a more half Protestant, half Catholic individual, which funny enough is the face of Anglicanism today. So in a sense, it's trying to rewrite Cranmer to look like uh, Anglicanism's own current face. And that's not really fair any longer. And even though there's been a history of biographical relig uh, revisionist history about Cranmer, there's been some recent work. And I mean, recent, like in the last 30 years, especially the biography of Dermot McCulloch that has uh, sought to reestablish a thoroughly Reformation-oriented, Protestant, Reformed Cranmer. And so whatever we want to say about Anglicanism and whether it should be more Catholic or more Protestant, what we need to be honest about is that uh, one of the major architects of the Church of England at the time of the Reformation was decidedly on the on the the protestant side yes and and let's not forget the church of england was birthed in the blood of the martyrs i mean indeed indeed uh, we could talk f for hours about Cranmer. i'm fascinated by him let's come and talk about the prayer books because there were two weren't there 1549 and then a revision in 15 1552 which radically changed some things i know and then the version that most people would be familiar with would be the what's called the Book of Common Prayer of 1662 or the 1662 Prayer Book. Well, that was actually a further revision, wasn't it? And uh, yes. was it Charles II with um, a lot of Puritan input? But mm -hmm. before we get into all that, can I ask you, because I think this is a central question, isn't it? How did justification by faith alone form the basis for Cranmer's thinking, his life, and his liturgy? I, yeah, the simplest way I'd answer that question is... Cranmer's own apprehension of the gospel in his own life seemed to plumb such depths that it began to affect everything that he thought and did. I wouldn't say it's probably an overstatement to say that somehow intellectually and conceptually justification by faith alone was was uh, the centerpiece of his theology. I would say it, it was much more organic in the sense of Cranmer was overhauled by the gospel, something about the good news that reemerged with clarity in the 16th century as a result of people being able to read fresh translations of the Bible and hear Paul's theology a bit unmoored from uh, its previous scholastic uh, theology and things like that really gave a, a clarity to the fact that God saves by grace alone through faith alone. And something about that changed Cranmer to the core. And as a result, he became convicted that the clarity of being able to receive that word, the word of who Jesus is and what he's done, was at stake in liturgical revision. So he wasn't 
interested, so it seems, in merely translating Latin liturgy to English. It's not that the prayer book is an English version of the Latin medieval tradition. It it was not only translated, it was theologically transposed into a, a, a justification by faith alone key. And it seems to, one of the arguments in my book is that it permeated a lot of his uh, revision decision-making. And so I go on a bit of a, an exploration and look at comparisons of, of the, the liturgies that predate Cranmer that he had in his possession and was working from, and the liturgies he created and set them side by side. Look at why he changed what words he did, why he changed what structures he did, what prayers he added. And the hypothesis is a lot of these decisions seem to be driven by his commitment to, or a, uh, a desire to see justification by faith alone govern the way the gospel is said in the prayer book. Yeah, how did Kramer become a Protestant? I mean, how, for example, was his theology shaped by Martin Luther? It seems that Cranmer really made his switch uh, over the course of, of a few years, but his big switch regarding the gospel seemed to happen in the 1530s. I, I do think that his time at Cambridge, uh, studying there, and then, um, and then being a, a professor there, exposed him to colleagues and people and the writings of Luther. And even as a lot of those early reformers would say, Erasmus's version of the New Testament and uh, the, that collection of relationships and works seemed to be began uh, pushing him to ask fresh questions of the tradition and the church fathers, because we see in his notebooks that he's starting to write annotations in his collections of the fathers. Uh, asking questions about things like justification and the sacraments, things that were uh, on the forefront of Protestant conversations in in that decade. Uh, it also seems that uh, the point of his conversion, if we can call it that, uh, happened maybe on an ambassadorial envoy to Europe where he finds himself, uh, or at least it's the point where we can say, hey, he's probably thoroughly Protestant here. Um, in the early 1530s, he's sent on a commission from the king out into uh, what's now Germany, German area, and those kinds of places. And he finds himself uh, in the town where the reformer Osiander is. He finds himself sitting in a worship service where they're using a modified liturgy. And he seems to be captivated by it because he's asking questions about it. And he also somehow comes away with a bride from that location. And that bride is Osiander's niece, which is uh, one of the reasons that people think that a reformer like Osiander wouldn't let anyone but a Protestant marry his niece. Uh, so it's sort of the the collection of those things, plus the writings that we see from him that indicate that he's, he's zeroing in on the good news and the gospel as something that's beginning to reshape and, and help him rethink everything. That's a lovely story. Uh, did, yeah. he, did he ever meet Luther? I think he did, didn't he? Uh, you know, that's not a, sure. I should know the answer to that, but I don't. No, I don't. Do I don't I. know that they ever met uh, personally. He had a lot more face to face with the other reformers, uh, like uh, or connections with in writing with with a lot of the other continental reformers. Mm. Okay, well, we're in a, a church in England, and after fifteen fifty two, after later, uh, after um, Cranmer's published his second prayer book. How different does the church look 
how differently is the priest dressed? How different <laughs> is the liturgy to what we would have experienced, say, pre-1514? I know this is a huge question. Yes, but yeah. Just to give it's, people a picture, just to give people an idea is. how dramatic and radical the changes were that Cranmer made. Yeah, Cranmer made a lot of changes that would have been immediately visible. Uh, and and the fact that those changes were so, so apparent uh, is is shown by the fact that there were full-blown revolts in in chunks of England that led to people warring and uh, and writing really nasty things about the new prayer book as a result. So some of those changes would be things like the the position and location of the communion table. In fact, even that I'm calling it a table would have been a radical shift up until 1549 and 1552. The table would have been called an altar. It would have been affixed against the, the back wall of the sanctuary up on the chancel on the nave. And by 1552, the prayer book at least, and many of the churches have begun this process, this architectural change, which would have been shocking to see an altar pulled off the wall, sometimes just uh, completely flattened and demolished, and a wooden table instead placed a little bit more either in the chancel in between the area where the choir faces one another, or even, as it said, in the body of the church. So even down in the nave where the pews are, a table along there, that would have been dramatic. Priests not wearing uh, chasubles and and big uh, ornate robes but instead just a cassock and surplus would have would have felt very different uh, a lot of the visual striking visual nature of of worship would have been simplified uh, the altars themselves in many instances were totally laid bare of their art and imagery and replaced with things like uh, statements of the ten commandments and scripture statements like that so the effect of the prayer book being rolled out uh, would have would have felt really shocking. And for many, it would have disturbed their piety. If your piety is related to those things, uh, you would have felt odd or you would have felt like, is God being dishonored here? Am I even able to talk to God anymore? So, some of the ways that I'm connecting with God intimately are being stripped from me. So yeah, it it would have felt very different. Uh, how does Kramer involve the congregation in, in the new liturgies? Well, first of all, he gives them a liturgy they can understand. You know, it's not the, in Latin anymore. It's not in Latin. So Latin would have only been understood by the priests and the upper classes. And everyone else would have just been told. And what you do during a worship service, during a Latin mass, your job is to is to pray quietly, to kind of have a, a quiet devotional experience, to pay attention at key moments in the worship service, such as when is the when the bell is rung and the priest is doing something specific with, with the consecrated host, uh, and those sorts of things. And it would have felt really different from a participation perspective to hear everything in your mother tongue. And he also puts a lot more words into the mouths of the people. So the people are responding a lot more verbally and are participating a lot more actively and being called upon not just to sit there, but to engage in um, in scripture responses and in uh, liturgical responses and those things. Yeah. Rito, your thoughts, comments, or questions? I think um, he moves slowly, right? Because he knows the situation he's in. He's trying to reform a whole country that, that, that wants to be Catholic. Do you think you know, his task is completed? You know, kind of all, all was 
you know, in his mind, does he want to move further and become more like the continental reformers in time? Yeah, that's a big question in the Cranmer scholarship is was the 1552 revision his final stop? Because what we see between 1549 and 1552 is a progression towards something more consciously Protestant, consciously reformed. And the big question mark that looms is if Cranmer had had longer to exist in a less hostile environment, would he have led a further revision of the prayer book? A lot of the a lot of the scholars say yes, he would have. Um, he would have done something maybe more because there was indication even in his later works that he was still tightening up or uh, or or refining his view, especially of the sacraments. That was the latest switch for him theologically. He he sort of had a had a theological shift about justification far more early than he was convinced that uh, of a different view of what was going on sacramentally in a worship service. So yeah, I I would guess that he probably would have had a, a, a more thorough revision. And so it's an interesting move of God's providence. And it certainly has affected the history of, uh, I dare say, English-speaking worship, that that's the furthest prayer book we got before he died. Oh, for sure. And, and just in terms of uh, the development of the English language, I mean, the prayer book w w led on to Shakespeare and all the all the, the great Indeed. English writers. It wouldn't have probably existed without it. We've got a bit of time left. I've got to ask you some details about liturgy and the actual theology of these services. Now, how did Cranmer's view of the Lord's Supper, for example, change between 1549 and 1552? And how was that change reflected in the liturgy of, of communion? Yeah. He moved over the course of time, even before 1549, he held to transubstantiation, an idea that the bread and the wine at a particular moment during uh, the worship service by the power of the Holy Spirit are substantially changed from bread and wine into Christ's uh, body and blood. And he moved from that position toward uh, and it's very debated what what is his eventual resting place, but towards some other view that is probably close somewhere around Calvin, Zwingli, somewhere in between there. But um, I, I, I've heard scholars argue that he had actually his own unique view. This is argued by Gordon Jeans in his book, Signs of God's Promise, that I find really convincing. But how that affected the liturgy uh, was that during communion, you see him shift in emphasis on focus on the elements to the focus on the people. In other words, he seems to be more interested in people experiencing God's presence, power, and Holy Spirit coming upon them and transforming their hearts. So in a sense, uh, this is how one of my doctoral supervisors articulates it. Cranmer still believed in transubstantiation after after his Protestant shift on the sacraments, he just believed that transubstantiation didn't happen in the elements, it happened in the hearts of human beings. In other words, we're transformed into the body of Christ by the power of the gospel as we come forward at the table. Uh, and so you see that play out in the emphases of the liturgy, what happens and doesn't happen, where the where the um, punctuation marks are, where the amens are, what the people are actually praying for and what people hear as a minister gives them the bread and gives them the wine. Yes, and the Epiclesis comes out in 1552, doesn't it? What, what was that? That's right. What was yeah, the, the Epiclesis? Epi 
The Epiclesis was a, a prayer that invoked the power and presence of the Holy Spirit uh, on the elements. And it's something that uh, has a lot of precedent in antiquity. But uh, my take is that Cranmer felt like that was putting too much focus on the elements. And if anything, Cranmer viewed the Holy Spirit as coming down and falling on people, not not the elements. And that's where he wanted uh, the emphasis to fall. So instead of praying a prayer that God would bless and sanctify with signs of the cross over the bread and the wine, these holy gifts, he was more interested in people feeling blessed and sanctified. And that led to the removal of that epicletic prayer and the the insertion of some prayers that sound a little bit more epicletic after communion that the people pray about the power and presence of the spirit in their lives. Yes, he really wanted the justification by faith alone to be to be very, very clear, didn't he? Yes. How, how does Cranmer use the words? Because these words were very important to him. Oblation, sacrifice, and satisfaction. How does Cranmer use those three words in the liturgy, and why were they so important to him? Right. Those three words uh, were very important to medieval sacrificial theology, and those words were used in the medieval liturgy with regards to the bread and the wine as they are offered by the people through Christ unto God. And what Cranmer wanted to point out was that the one true oblation, sacrifice, and offering was given by Christ on the cross. And so Cranmer's very emphatic with his words and with the emphases of those words in that prayer that Christ has offered that once for all then and there on the cross rather than here at the table. And uh, what we're doing at the table isn't a representation of that oblation before the Lord, but rather it is a, it is a, I'll say remembrance, but that doesn't mean just particularly a memory of something previous, but a rich, thick Christian biblical view of what remembrance is. How is the language of justification by grace alone present in some of the prayers in Cranmer's liturgy? I mean, the prayer of humble access, for example, is a classic. Right. Um, I probably want to clarify that, and this is something that I argue in my book, because one could say that the language of justification doesn't appear all that often. So the work I try to do in Worship by Faith Alone is talk about some recent Pauline scholarship that has helped elucidate that justification as a paradigm is present in Paul's theology, even when he's not speaking about it. And it operates similarly in Cranmer's liturgies because he seems to have been such a deep reader and receiver of Paul. And so uh, what I like to say is that the structure and the grammar of justification by faith alone is present in the way he constructs his liturgical sentences. And there'd be... There'd be a, a lot to unpack, but where that comes across so beautifully in the prayer of humble access is we do not presume to come to this, thy table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. So the word justification isn't there, but what we find is the grammar of the gospel, a place like Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, not I, but Christ. You see a not I, but Christness in the separation of uh, what I bring and what God brings. So we do not presume to come to this, thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. So that's totally off the table, not I, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, 
but you are the same Lord. So there's this constant separation of I am this and you are this and what you are, Lord, as merciful, gracious in Christ is more than enough. Last question. We're running out of time fast. Alas, we could I could talk for hours about this. What can the prayer book teach us, though, about our theology and worship? What can we learn from Cranmer's work and Ridley's work? Because Ridley had an Im import into this as well, didn't he? Indeed. Yeah. When we're learning from Cranmer, I do believe we're learning from all the English reformers, because even though he's the architect of the prayer book, one of the things that I've discovered is his relationships and friendships with all these thinkers, theologians, bishops, and friends and colleagues have, have found their way into his revision. And I do think that those of us who are in the business of planning and leading worship services, pastors, worship leaders, whatever tradition we are, uh, Cranmer is something to teach us of what it means to construct worship in a way that's faithful to the gospel. And that's one of the things I try to argue is you don't need to be an Anglican or even use a prayer book to, in a sense, receive the the the, the powerful and inspiring vision that Cranmer had for what it would look like to craft a worship service according to the gospel. It'll probably take that final chapter of my book to really explain that. But uh, I think the enduring legacy of Cranmer for all of us, irrespective of our tradition, will be is if we're serious about the gospel, uh, we want to give Cranmer a good, hard, deep listen and look, because what he did in the 16th century has some wonderful methodological insights for us for planning our worship service that, that may look very different, but could be equally as faithful to that grammar of the gospel. Indeed. Ian, final questions. Uh, do you, you personally, do you use um, some liturgy or in your own personal kind of worship? And how do you, how do you incorporate into your own life? I do. I have come to more historic liturgical practices in my adult life. I didn't grow up in a in a, a very liturgical tradition. And so, yes, I actually grab a hold of Cranmer's prayer book and some modern prayer books for occasional use of morning prayer and evening prayer. And even for uh, I'm a pastor of a church plant right now, and we are we're a Presbyterian church plant as well. And so we've got a bit of freedom for how we can construct our worship within certain bounds. And so honestly, our 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 worship service looks like a, a kind of modernized Cranmerian liturgical worship service that's very geared toward uh, uh, receiving the Lord's Supper every week. So it's in my corporate piety and it's in my my own devotional life. Sounds great to me. Zach Hicks, adjunct lecturer in music and worship at Samford University, Alabama in the States, and his book from IVP America is called Worship by Faith Alone. Thomas Cranmer, The Book of Common Prayer and the Reformation Liturgy. And if you're really interested in this and want to find out more, do grab a hold of, I don't know whether you can, I'm assuming you can still buy a copy, Cranmer's book on the, on the, on the Lord's Supper, which is fantastic, where he explains the differences in thinking and dif explains the, uh, the gospel view of the Lord's Supper. It's written very clearly, and you don't really have to, I found I didn't really have to make too many allowances for the 16th century English. It was That's so direct right. and clear. Yeah, yeah he, he wrote really clearly in that work. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's, if I recall, it's The Defense of the True, and it's got a horribly long title. Yes, one of those But long... yes, you can Google it and find it. 
but it's don't be put off by the title because it's fantastic and it's a very <laughs> clear very clear view of uh, Cramer's view of the Lord's Supper Zach and Ian uh, Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church Palmerston North New Zealand Rito as always both of you gentlemen thank you so much and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes thank you both so much thank you all we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.